Our scripture this morning comes from the book of Exodus, chapter 33, beginning at verse 18, and then chapter 34, beginning at verse 6. Moses said, please show me your glory. And he said, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. How many of you have ever said or heard someone else say, God is good, God is good all the time? Those are true statements. But the question is, what does it mean when we say God is good? Well, in the passage that we just looked at, God himself said, I will tell you what my goodness is. Because as Moses asked a request, would you please show me your glory? And God's response is, I will show you my goodness. And then in Exodus 34, verses 6 and 7, we have one of the most significant passages in the Old Testament where what God does is he explains in more detail what his goodness is. Now, I'm going to use a very simple visual aid today. I'm going to use a coin. Now, the thing about a coin is there's two sides, always two sides, but only two sides. There's heads and there's tails. And every time we learn something about God's goodness, that's heads. But wherever there's heads, the other side of the coin is nearby, tails. So everything we learn about God's goodness will also tell us something about us in our weakness and sinfulness so that we realize God is exactly the kind of God that you and I need. So we're going to look at what God says about himself in his goodness. And the first thing is that the kind of God that we need is merciful. Now, what does that mean? <clears throat> Mercy means that God has a tender concern for people who are hurting or people who are miserable, especially because of the wrong that we ourselves have done. In his mercy, God comes to us to forgive and to restore. And one of the many passages that talks about that is the beginning of David's prayer of confession in Psalm 51. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. So God sees the sinfulness in people, what we bring upon ourselves, and his goodness is to be merciful to us. But if he is merciful, what's the other side of the coin? What does it tell us about ourselves? Well, it tells us Sometimes we are miserable because of our circumstances or hardships. And sometimes we're miserable because others have wronged us. But the emphasis in Scripture is that the primary reason we are miserable is because of our own sinfulness, including the wrong responses we make to others who wrong us. In other words, we create 
the lion's share of our own misery. And what God does is, because he is merciful, he says, I see the misery, even what you brought upon yourself. And if you will combine my mercy to meet you in your misery, this should be a great motivation for you to respond to me. And Paul spells that out very clearly in Romans chapter 12, verse 1. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. So the kind of God that we need is, first of all, merciful, but he's also gracious. And the grace of God is found in two different ways. More often than not, the word grace refers to God's favor. It's not just unmerited favor. It's favor to people who deserve righteous judgment. We read in Romans chapter 3, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Justified is a shorthand word for your sins are forgiven and you have right standing before God. And God's response is that is a gift. I give you favor and you don't earn any of it. In fact, you actually deserve judgment because you fall short. But what I choose to give you is a gift of my favor. But the other way grace is used in Scripture is it's referring to God's power. At work within our lives, in order to bring about results that are pleasing to God that you and I would not be able to bring about by ourselves. One person who experienced that kind of grace over and over again was the Apostle Paul. When he said, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Now, he expended a lot of energy, and he poured himself into his ministry. But he did not turn around and say, isn't that great how wonderful I am? What he recognized was that all that was happening through him, all the results in his life, back behind that was grace, power given to him, flowing through him, and bringing about results that are pleasing to God. So God is a God who's gracious. But what does that tell us about ourselves? People who are characterized by weakness and ongoing struggle with sin. Well, the first thing it tells us is that in ourselves, none of us can stand in a righteous way before God. All of us are sinners deserving judgment in ourselves. But when we trust in Christ as our Savior, there's a biblical phrase that's used frequently in the New Testament. It's called in Christ. And what that means is, once we trust in Jesus, God never, never sees us by ourselves. Thank God. He always sees Christ, and he sees us in Christ. And the reason he is able to pour favor into us every single day, day after day, month after month, is that he always sees Christ and then us in Christ. Because he always sees Christ, he's always looking toward us with favor. That is his grace toward us. But also in ourselves, none of us have the ability to bring about spiritual results. Jesus himself said, apart from me, you can do, you can do nothing. But when we trust in Christ, what happens is he comes to dwell within us by the Holy Spirit. And as we abide in Christ, we bring forth fruit. In fact, God the Father is honored in which we bring forth much fruit. And so we are people who in ourselves can't stand before God, in ourselves cannot bring about good results. That's what it tells us about ourselves. But in Christ, favor is shown to us 
and good results happen in our lives. And so we need to keep coming back to a very well-known passage at the end of Hebrews chapter 4, verses 15 and 16. Keep looking to Jesus. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, which are many, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. That's what it is to be living with a gracious God. So the kind of God that we need is merciful. He's gracious. He's also slow to anger. Now, God has a capacity for anger. And we're made in the image of God, so we have a capacity for anger because that is part of what it means to be shaped and made like God. God's anger, on the other hand, is always righteous. And every kind of anger begins in a moral judgment that something is wrong. Listen to the word should or ought when we say, this should have happened, but it didn't. This should not have happened, but it did. Things are not the way they should be, and I'm angry. Well, God is a God who has a capacity for anger. And what this means is that God has patience. And he is a God who's able to use restraint in exercising his justice. Now, it's interesting that we, in our English translations, have the phrase slow to anger. That's not exactly the Hebrew. It's a Hebrew idiom, and it draws on body language. You see, when a person's really angry, really furious, we have to get more oxygen. And as a result, our breathing becomes rapid and short and fast, and we breathe strongly through our nose. (laughs) And so the Hebrew idiom is this. It takes a long time for God's nostrils to flare. That's what it literally says. And so God is patient with us. And we need to realize how wonderful that is. Do you know if the very moment we sinned in thought, word, or deed, the very moment God immediately made us face consequences, we had a wrong thought, instant consequence. I said something harsh, instant consequence. Do you realize if God were not patient, we would never have enough time to seek forgiveness? God gives us time to repent gives us time to hear the Holy Spirit speak into our lives, where he uses the, whole, the word of God, which is not only profitable for teaching, but for reproof, correction, and for training in righteousness. And so God says, I'm going to give you time to repent once I show you that was wrong, but don't take advantage of my patience. Romans chapter 2, verse 4 says, or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? Here's the fact. We all need God's patience every day and probably more than once. He's slow to anger. That's heads. But what about the other side of the coin? What's it tell us about us? Well, it tells us that in a variety of ways, our anger is so often shaped by and infected by sin. See, in a fallen world, most people who are angry are pretty well convinced that my anger is justified. But when you're angry, "Mm, I'm not so sure that you're always justified. You're not quite on the same level that I am. I'm angry, that's okay. You're angry, not so sure that your anger is okay. But what God wants to help us to see 
is that so very often our anger is tainted. For example, take Jonah, who gave that message to Nineveh, 40 days and you'll be destroyed. And it wasn't destroyed. And he goes out and he's pouting. He's really angry. He wanted them wiped off the face of the earth and God comes to him and twice asks him, have you any right to be angry? He was angry. Did he have a right to be angry? Was it righteous anger? No, it wasn't. So what God does is he sees our heart and he gives us this good word and fair warning in James chapter 1, verses 19 and 20. Everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, slow to become angry. For man's anger does not bring about the righteous life that God desires. It is possible, but very difficult, to simply have righteous anger and carry it out in the right way. Nevertheless, God wants us to have a righteous anger that both seeks justice and is ready to offer mercy. As he expresses in Micah chapter 6, verse 8. What does the Lord require of you but to do justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God? So what's the kind of God that we need? A God who's merciful, gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love. Now, what does this tell us about God? That he abounds in steadfast love. That word translated steadfast love is a very special word in the original. It means a deep loyalty. When God loves with deep loyalty, we can be assured that he will always love. Remember, he saw us at our absolute worst. He saw our whole life and all the sin of our whole life so that Christ could die for all of our sin. He loved us at that point. So anytime during our life now when we sin, God's not going to say, oh, what I see right now is far worse than I've ever seen in your life before. His love is loyal. His love is great and committed. Listen to what we read in Micah chapter 7, verse 18. Who is a God like you, pardoning the iniquity and passing over the transgression for the remnant of his inheritance? He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in steadfast love. There are times when we can be pretty hard on ourselves and other people, but God delights in steadfast love. And that's how he looks at us. And it's from this passage that Jesus in John chapter 10 says, I have come that they may have life and have it abundantly. What is abundant life? It is experiencing a God who abounds in steadfast love toward us. That's what it tells us about God. But what's the other side of the coin? The other side of the coin is that in every single one of us, there is a deep, sinful self-centeredness. The world revolves around I, myself, and me. When the apostle Paul was writing to Timothy in the second letter, in the beginning of chapter 3, he starts to list an extraordinary litany of all of the sins that are going to be characterizing the world in the end times. And the very first one is this, lovers of self. The fact of the matter is, apart from the Lord, what Jesus tells us in John chapter 3 is true of all of it. Now, John 3, God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son. Three verses later, people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. We have to be honest with ourselves. There is a love of darkness. 
And even if we have known the Lord for decades, there still resides within our heart a love of darkness that will seek to well up within us, which means we need to keep coming back day by day to the steadfast love of God. And how do we focus on that? Keep coming back to Jesus. Keep coming back to what Christ did for us on the cross. That is the strongest evidence of God's love for us. What we read in Romans 5, 8, God shows his love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So he died for us. Let me focus on the cross. And then as I do that, pray in the spirit of Romans 5, 5, that God would pour out his love into our hearts by the Holy Spirit. And if we keep reorienting our life around the fact of the love of God shown in the cross, poured out into our heart by the Holy Spirit, and that we know that we are loved not because of our greatness and our goodness, we are loved because of his mercy, then he will enable us to have an emotionally healthy love of ourself. There is a proper healthy self-love. We are to love our neighbors as ourselves. It is God's love that enables us to have a healthy love that enables us to, in a healthy way, reach out and help other people. So what is the kind of God that we need? He's merciful, gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, and abounding in faithfulness. What does it mean that God is faithful? He's reliable. He's dependable. He's completely trustworthy. All throughout Scripture, he gives us many, many promises. And because he's a faithful God, as we trust in him, he will fulfill his promise. And let me mention a, uh, a verse, a wonderful verse from the Old Testament, and someone alluded to that in our prayer time today. Lamentations chapter 3, verses 22 and 23. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness every day, mercy. Every day, new opportunities. Every day, faithful to us. Great is your faithfulness. That's what we learn about God. What's the other side of the coin? The other side of the coin is because of our ongoing weaknesses and because we have a continual struggle with sin in different forms, we're still like sheep. We still want to go our own way. We still turn around and say, I'm going to go this way. And the Lord says, go this way. No, I think I'll go over here. And God knows how susceptible we are to temptation because part of our heart is always ready to give in to temptation. So here is God's faithfulness to people like us. 1 Corinthians 10, 13. No temptation has seized you except what is common to man. But God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted, he will also provide a way out so that you can stand up under it. Because God is faithful, we never, ever, ever have to sin. We are never in a place where we say, I had no choice. There is always a way out. Let me use another picture. Imagine temptation in terms of weight. If we can only handle 20 pounds of temptation, God will never let us face 30 pounds. 
And if we grow in the Lord at some point where we can handle 50 pounds of temptation, he will never let us face 60 pounds. He's faithful. He's faithful in every temptation. But we know ourselves. We, we yield to temptation at times. We sin. So what is God's response? Having provided a way out, but we decide not to do it. Now we sin. What is God's response to that? It's a wonderful promise in 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Boy, do we need a God like that. And then finally, the kind of God we need is merciful, gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, abounding in faithfulness, and forgiving iniquity, transgression, and sin. What does that tell us about God? What do we learn? We learn God's heart, that he has a desire to forgive guilty people, people who have offended his character, people who have openly disobeyed his commands, and his heart is, I wish to forgive. He knows how we have sinned, but he chooses to respond toward us as though we had always been as righteous as Jesus. Now think about that. God, God's omniscient. He knows everything. He doesn't forget anything. But in a sense, we can say God has forgotten. In what sense? Because it's like he no longer treats us as the person who's done those things. He treats us as though we had always been like Jesus. Jeremiah 31 says, For I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. He'll treat us as though we had not done that. He'll treat us as though we'd always been as righteous as Jesus. And yet God does say, and he says it especially in the Ten Commandments, he is a jealous God. Now, there is a sinful jealousy, but where there is no genuine rivalry, jealousy is appropriate, as we see in a marriage. But God says, I am God. I expect to be treated as God. I don't expect anybody or anything else to be treated as God in my place. And I will visit the iniquity. I will bring righteous judgment upon people who hate me. Up to the third and fourth generation of hatred going through that family, I will say, I'm a righteous God. I will not overlook that. But keep this in mind. While I will visit the iniquity up to the fourth generation, I will show my love to a thousand generations of those who love me. God is far more ready to love and forgive than he is to bring righteous judgment. That's who God is. But the other side of the coin, what does it say about us? And it uses three different words explaining different aspects of the sin in our lives. Iniquity. It means either that we know what is right and we turn away from it, or it means we know what is right and we just decide, I'm not gonna do it. That's iniquity. The word transgression is stronger. It means I rebel, I revolt, and I refuse to submit myself to God. Pretty strong word. The word translated sin takes the idea of having an arrow, and there's the target, and I shoot over here, and I miss the mark, and I end up doing what is wrong. And so that is who we are, and that sin brings us into a moral bondage, but God's response is, I will deliver you from that in Christ. 
As we read in Ephesians 1, we in Christ, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. So God knows all about our sinfulness. We oftentimes are blinded, deceived by it. We don't see it clearly. He sees it all clearly. And his response is, I'm here to forgive. So what is the kind of God we need? What's the kind of God I need? What's the kind of God you need? He's merciful, gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, abounding in faithfulness, forgiving iniquity, transgression, and sin. In other words, God is good. God is good all the time. And all God's people said, Amen. Peter, uh, in his first letter, closes with this warning that there is going to be suffering and affliction and trouble because our enemy, the devil, prowls about like a lion. But then he says, resist him, trusting in Christ. And he closes with a promise, which is a good benediction. May the God of grace perfect you, confirm you, and strengthen you. To him be glory forever and ever. Amen. Mm -hmm.